This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Salmon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we travel to Ephesus, hearing the first of John's seven letters in its context. All right, this first letter, quote-unquote, written within the letter, the book of Revelation. This is the letter of the Church of Ephesus. We've been to Ephesus before, we actually. Have. We have. Episode 158. Episode 158. We're going to link it in the show notes. Yeah. All right, there you go. And maybe you can, like, uh, set the scene. Do we have... Um, you said that Revelation was probably written during the reign of Domitian. Yes. Which puts it what date? Oh, oh man. I'm going to, you're going to check this for me, but I'm going to say right around 90 AD, 88 to 90 AD. Domitian ruled from 81 to 96. Yes. And it's going to be, yes, late 80s. I would have to check my turkey notes to give you a really solid answer, but that is what I want my gut to tell me. So in comparison, the book of Ephesians was written, what time frame are we thinking? Oh, earlier than that. Um, there will be some scholarly debate because a lot of scholars don't even think that Paul wrote half these letters. Yeah, so there is that issue. Uh, so Paul died somewhere between 64 and 67. So if you believe Paul wrote it, it's before that. And apparently he arrived in Ephesus around 62, and so it was probably within a couple of years of that, which is okay. the earliest day of his potential death. So somewhere in the mid-60s, probably. Okay. So we're about uh, about 25 years-ish removed from Paul's writing there. What What is the change in Ephesus over those 25 years? What, what's the difference? Oh, in... find me another date. Uh, figure out when Mount Vesuvius erupted. Uh, give me that date. There's all kinds of things that are just always changing with... If you want to hear all the backstory to Ephesus, you're going to have to come to Turkey with me. And it's a fantastic backstory. Um, some of the things that are driving why Ephesus is the way that it is. Uh, the the big eruption was in AD 79. 79, okay. Which is actually what kind of led to Domitian's reign. Uh, so So definitely after... So basically, you have all these different emperors, right? And these emperors in Rome, these Caesars, when they come to power, have to choose what's called a neo-chorus. They have to have, like, their capital city. Obviously, Rome is Rome, but then you have—what is the seat of their political influence going to be? And sometimes it's Rome. Usually it's not. It's usually some other city strategically chosen for a whole host of different reasons politically. Um, and so every—it it is relatively common—I don't know if that's fair— but maybe more common than other places, people are choosing Ephesus. It is the second largest city in the Roman Empire outside of Rome itself. It's a major port city. And so emperors are always choosing this as their neo-chorus. You have like a you have like a, a coming and going political seat of power. In, in particular, you said 79 Mount Vesuvius erupts. Uh, there was a famous oracle at, uh, we might even cover this later in our study, I believe it was the Oracle at Del Delphi, the the Oracle, um, said that the reason that Mount Suvius erupted is because the Romans had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews, was upset, and that's why Mount Vesuvius erupted. To which Domitian based his entire political campaign 
uh, a, a, a political campaign of fear. Not that we would know anything about these things. Um, but he ran an entire political campaign. I didn't even get a smile out of Brett Billings. He's just over there like stonewall faced over there. <laughs> well, you know how I love to wade into our current <laughs> politics. <laughs> but Domitian ran a very fear-based uh, political campaign that basically said, I'm going to destroy – if the Jewish God is upset at me, I don't know why you take this stand, but – I'm going to destroy all of them. Like, we will destroy the Jews and their God. And that was kind of his take. So by the time Domitian comes to power, what's really changed is that being a Jew, especially in Ephesus, which is Domitian's neo-chorus, and we'll deal with this more later in the book, what a, what a, you are feeling the pressure, literally, the, the, the persecution, the execution of your brothers and sisters. That's what's changed between the letter of Ephesians and the book of Revelation. Good, good question. So it's fairly significant if the book of Revelation was written during the reign of Domitian, that the first church that is addressed is his neocourse. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't necessarily even think about that, but absolutely. Like uh, even where my notes start here, um, the reason I've always thought of it, as many scholars have pointed out, that the order of the seven churches is the actual order of the postal delivery route. So uh, if there's going to be a letter delivered from Ephesus, which would be common, it's the port city, letters coming from all over. In this case, John is in Ephesus, but the postal delivery route is going to be the order in which the churches receive their letter, which is pretty interesting. Uh, the letter begins in Ephesus, for that is where the letter is most likely pinned. This is where the Apostle John ended up being stationed as the pastor to Asia, and church tradition holds that he lived there with Mary— the mother of Jesus, if you remember Jesus on the cross saying, John, this is your mother, and mother, this is your son, and kind of giving them as this new family connection, take care of her. And church tradition says he did. He took Mary with her with him everywhere, and she died in Ephesus, is what church tradition says. There's actually a house that they say is her house. Eh, probably not, but who Was knows? she on Patmos? Uh, that I don't know. I don't, I don't believe she joined him on Patmos, but who knows? Yeah, I wouldn't think so. I, mean, but... I wouldn't think so either. So Ephesus, Ephesus was written about by many other historians and, and people having political conversation as the head of the snake in reference to the Christian, uh, the Christian movement. While many people speak of Antioch being the headquarters of Christianity, this was only a reality for a small period of time as the early movement exploded throughout the world of biblical Asia and Asia Minor. Ephesus, the second largest city in the Roman Empire, was centrally located and became the likely port city for the movement to call its home. Because of this, one of the battles Ephesus constantly had to fight was that of false apostles and false teachers. And it wasn't too many episodes ago, Brent, we talked about false teachers, the book of Jude, the book of Second Peter. We had these conversations and we, and we said, what was the big problem there? Was it orthodoxy or... What was it, Brent? Orthopraxy. It was orthopraxy. It was right practice. And so there's all kinds of temptations here in Ephesus, second, second largest city in the empire, to live this life of compromise. And yet, it appears to be something that they handled quite well, the church did in Ephesus. At least if the letter of Ephesus is any... By the way, who's the pastor? Let's add some more context. Who's the pastor in Ephesus? John himself. No, nope, that's the pastor oh, to Asia. Who's Timothy. the pastor? Of the, ah, Timothy. Timothy. That gives us a little bit more. Like, who is leading this church that seems to be handling this so well? That little young punk named Timothy. Uh, love it. So this letter appears... Or, or, or this, this issue of orthopraxy, they seem to handle quite well. 
And uh, we have the letter of Ephesus in the book of Revelation to be an indication for us. Let's go ahead and hear the letter to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So you can see that John mentions more than once their faithfulness and endurance in the realm of not tolerating wicked people, of testing things for the act of discernment. John also references the Nicolaitans. And from what we know in history, and it's debated wildly, but we do have some references, our best understanding of the Nicolaitans is that they were a group of people who proposed full engagement with the pagan Roman culture. Um, and, and not just good engagement, but synchronistic engagement. Probably influenced by the same Gnostic heresies that the New Testament writers are often battling, and I would even argue those false teachers, these false believers had proposed that one could engage the pagan practices in the flesh while keeping their spirit pure and totally devoted to God. In a sense, it would be like somebody crossing their fingers behind their back while they offer incense to pagan gods. The explanation goes something like this. I'm not truly worshiping those gods. God knows what's in my heart. And so what is so damning for many of us is how much we find that thinking prevalent in our own lives and hearts. If we are willing to look closely, I know that is true for me. Um, I wonder at times, Brent, when I think about that, if that's the same false teachers that Jude was writing about. If the Nicolaitans, is it a totally different group? Is it a related group? Is there overlap? Is it just the same group? Is that what Second Peter's talking about? Is that what Colossians is battling? I would assume it's probably a whole lot more complicated and nuanced than that, but I've wondered how closely those things are related. But there are many other details in the letter to Ephesus we simply don't have clear ideas on from history. It is the wrong church letter to, tr- to try to teach the greater principles about our methodology of John in Revelation. So we're going to keep moving in order to see those principles more clearly. So what we're doing is we're just trying to introduce. This is not going to be a quick, in one episode, teach you all the tricks to interpreting Revelation. We're going to slowly ease our listeners into, here's a principle, let's just see it. Here's a principle, let's go a little bit deeper. Here's a principle, let's lean all the way on it. Here's another layer of that principle. Here's a principle. And eventually, by the time we get done with the seven letters, we're going to kind of be equipped to go into Revelation and know like what we're looking for and how John's methodology works in his apocalyptic literature. So rest assured that we won't be leaving the overall discussion about Ephesus, but only the letter here in chapter 2. Since Ephesus was the place where the letter was penned, we will find its culture and imagery come up over and over and over again as we study. So do not fret. 
we will be returning to Ephesus in good time. I do have one other question before we end, though. All right. So in the title of our episode, yes. uh, we, we say Ephesus and their first love, and it's here in uh, verse 4. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Yes. What, what What is their first love? Do we have any idea what that might be? Yeah. On some level, we debate it, and the answer is no. We have no idea. But on another level, I think we have some hunches. And if we go back to that early podcast on Ephesians and we pull that apart— one of the things that I know we talked about is in the first few chapters, we focused a lot on pronouns. You remember the pronoun discussion, Brent? Mm, that was a while ago. Yeah. There's some, a lot of we's and you's and the we's being Jews. We have understood our story that was handed down to us oh, yes. and this faith of ours. And now you and the you being the Gentiles, the Gentiles have right. now been invited into this thing. And then, and then in chapter two, it talks about how, how Christ and, and the crucifixion tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And, and I think that dividing wall there of hostility would be a reference to, I think there's a play off the idea of in the temple, there was a little wall about two, three, three feet high. That was the wall of the Gentiles. And obviously it wasn't a physical wall. You could just step right over it. And yet there was a sign there that said, you know, only, I can't remember what the, what the actual inscription was, but only born Jews may go past this point and to go past this point, not a Jew is to basically, you know, sign your own death warrant. So there was this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile in the temple courts. And I think Paul kind of referencing this new spiritual house that's being built, saying this new reality in Christ has torn down that wall. There's no wall separating Jew and Gentile. So I have wondered if in my mind, this first love and, and, and I even go back Ephesians 1, talking about the love of Christ, that they might know the riches, the deep, uh, the, the depth of the love of Christ, the knowledge of him. Like, did they have a deep, meaningful love for Jesus that they've lost? Did they, or is it the love they had for each other? Is it the love they had for the greater community, Jew, and have they lost the love for inclusion? Have they lost the love for diversity? Have they lost that love. On one hand, we're told that they have persevered, that they hate fault, that they hate false teachers. And I've already made the case. I don't think that's about orthodoxy. I think it's about orthopraxy. So I think they're fighting for right practice, but has something inside of them died? Has a fire cooled off? Is there something about the mission that they had such a possession of earlier in their story? Is there something? that they've lost, obviously something they've lost. What is that? Could it be this, especially in, in Ephesus, second largest city of the empire, if they had a commitment to diversity, to inclusion of the Gentile, what a big deal. And if that started to cool off, I don't know. Those are just some hunches. Do we know? No, we don't. But I love to, I love to come up with hunches. All right. I, I enjoy the speculation. I'm sure our listeners will have uh, some additional thoughts to add to that. Absolutely. Short little conversation today. Yeah, pretty short. Uh, if you do have any thoughts on uh, on what the first love of Ephesus might be, uh, hopefully you can root it in the text somewhere. If you can find some, some references there, we always appreciate that. I'll tell you where I've been having fun, Brent, to my chagrin. Uh, don't don't <laughs> repeat this okay. to anybody. Okay. I've been having fun on the Slack channel. Okay. The Slack workspace. We would have some good conversations over there. It's a great spot for that. You have an idea about the first level would be? Join our Slack workspace. You should put the link in our show notes because uh, what a fun place to talk about this kind of stuff if you haven't found a little... Co- now, the online community is not supposed to replace real community. Right, Brent? Right. Right. But it is a great... 
um, a great little addition to your Bema experience. And I just love hearing what other people find. There are some people out there finding some brilliant things, some awesome stuff. And and for the entire run of the podcast, like there are people today studying, uh, going deep in session one stuff. Yep. We got and, a channel and, for session one. Each session has its own channel for discussion. Yeah. So you can jump into old sessions and see what other people are. It's a great way to review. It it's is good. Great. It's fun. Yeah. I noticed not a whole lot of action in session two. Well, <laughs> a whole lot of people admitting they just skipped right to session three. <laughs> naughty, naughty. <laughs> oh, man. Well, what are you going to do? Kick him out. That's what I'm going to do. He who has ears, let him hear yeah. what the Spirit says to the podcast listeners. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right. Well, go to bamadestubship.com. Uh, there are links there to, to join the Slack. I'll put in the show notes for this episode, of course. But but it's on the website. Uh, there's, there's links to get a hold of me or Marty directly. Uh, all, all the details you need about the show is at baymodestabshop.com. So go there, and thanks for joining us on the Baymod Podcast. We'll talk to you again next week with the letter to Smyrna. Mm-hmm.